Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And before I turn the microphone over to Lex Pelger and his guest, there are, uh, well, a couple of things that I want to pass on to you. First of all, if you are interested in going to a big festival, but you'd like to avoid the heat and dust storms that come with a Burning Man experience, well, you may want to look into attending the Lightning in a Bottle Festival, which is going to take place this May, May 23rd to 28th, 2018, at Lake San Antonio in Bradley, California. And in addition to a spectacular live music lineup, their learning and culture track is filled with interesting speakers this year. And I'll post a link to their lineup in today's program notes at psychedelicsalon.com. Now, (laughs) speaking of Burning Man and dust storms, well, John Hanna has begun posting some of his massive store of videos to YouTube, and one of the first recordings that he posted is of Bruce Damer's 2007 Planque Norte lecture, which was given during a major dust storm. I've played a recording of Bruce's talk in my podcast number 106, which Bruce titled, How Rare We Are in the Universe. And even if you've already listened to this podcast, I think that, uh, well, you'll really enjoy watching at least the beginning of the talk just to see how difficult the conditions were when Bruce was speaking. In addition to John's video, I've also posted a very short video segment that I took during that talk where I panned the audience so that you could see that most of them had to wear breathing masks while Bruce spoke. And if you do watch that little clip... Well, you may think that my camera was out of focus in the beginning, but the problem was, with all of the dust that had filled the yurt after the top of it blew out in the storm, it made it look a little fuzzy. Anyway, now that I've had my little festival reverie, I think that it's time for me to turn the program over to Lex Pelger, who also has a couple of announcements himself before he introduces today's interview. It's just like this sort of knowledge that you're getting from yourself that is what you need to hear to get better. I'm Lex Pelger, and this is a Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Hello, everybody. Today, I'm pleased to welcome an old friend from the psychedelic community. He came by the Bluebird office to share about his work with MDMA for PTSD. His name is Dr. Ingmar Gorman, and as you'll hear, he's working in several different directions to learn more about how to integrate these novel psychoactives into therapeutic uses. With a PhD in clinical psychology, he receives funding for his research from the National Institute of Health. Ingmar also works with MAPS on their phase three trials that's moving MDMA towards an accepted medicine under the FDA. Working at the intersection of trauma and healing, I hope you enjoy hearing from Dr. Ingmar Gorman. But before we get to the show, I have a few psychedelic announcements for the community. And the first one comes from Ingmar himself. In New York City, he's helping to lead a two-day training for clinicians about psychedelic integration. For any doctors who want to learn about the work, this is a great place to check it out. I'll put a link to this and the rest of the announcements in the episode notes. Also, our friend Quazi, who founded the Psychedelic Society of Western New York, is organizing the Global Psychedelic Earth Day Cleanup. On April 22nd, communities around the world will be out doing things for the planet. Contact them to find a group to work with 
or to lead your own cleanup project. Finally, if you remember hearing from Ben Delonen of ICERS, the International Center for Ethnobotanical Research, their organization is conducting a survey about people's drug use. Please go and add to the data. And now, on with the show. Thanks for coming on the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Lex. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this and what you're up to now? Sure. Well, um, I guess my interest began with a psychedelic conferences in around 2006 and t- really 2006 and uh, went to a conference and found that I was fascinated by what the people were presenting on. And it became a passion of mine where I said, well, I'm going to dedicate my life to this the study of these substances and particularly the psychotherapy. Like that's what really uh, interests me. The intersection of the psychedelic or MDMA assisted psychotherapy. So the question of like, so how is it assisting the therapy? What is it doing? So maybe I could say a little bit about MDMA therapy for those who don't, or MDMA assisted psychotherapy for those who aren't familiar with it. So currently there's research being done for various, uh, indications. And the one that I focus on is PTSD. So using MDMA to enhance psychotherapy to somehow treat PTSD, maybe you could say more efficiently uh, or potentially more effectively than other modalities for PTSD. And this is not to, I'm not making, I want to be clear that I'm not saying that this treatment is better because we don't really have that data at this time. Uh, but it may be on par with other treatments and it may be helpful for people who don't respond as well to other existing treatments. And so this, this mode of therapy is still um, being un- in investigated. MDMA is a Schedule One drug. So in order to do this treatment, you have to be doing a study that's approved by the FDA, uh, the DEA. So maybe to step back for a second... For, those, for people who aren't familiar with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, it's a psychological disorder that is somehow linked to a traumatic event. And there is some debate in the field, and I could speak for a very long time about this, but there's a debate around what constitutes a traumatic event. But what seems to be an important piece of it is that a person feels like that their life was threatened in some way. It could also extend to the life of a loved one or somebody near them. There's different ways of kind of qualifying this, but someone's life being threatened is an important piece of that. And now people have go through traumatic experiences all the time. Sadly, it's, it is a part of life. And different people are able to respond and cope with uh, trauma in different ways. And one, one outcome of trauma is post-traumatic stress disorder, which consists of various uh, a cluster of kind of responses to the trauma. That can include after a period of time, after the trauma occurred, a person may re-experience the trauma. And that can be anything from what people may stereotypically think of like a flashback, sort of the classic idea of the Vietnam veteran who is suddenly back in uh, the, the jungle or fighting uh, after hearing, you know, a car backfire or whatever. That's like 
often an example, but I think that that is maybe overemphasized sometimes too much because re-experiencing, in my mind at least, can also be something that is embodied where it's not as clear-cut as having a nightmare or being no, no longer being in the world or the reality that you once were uh, or, or in, in the present, but more so a, a physical – when I say embodied, meaning – and now this is kind of hard to describe, but feeling in your body that you're back in that traumatized place. And so that could be something like uh, a person who has PTSD, their their boss may walk behind them and they associate to an abusive partner or parent and they tense up because they're expecting to get hit, right? And that's very subtle. And for some people that... Um, that may not be clear that it can be part of a PTSD symptomology. And so this is, that's, you need in order to meet criteria for PTSD, you need to have various clusters. So there's like, there's re-experiencing, there's changes in mood, changes in cognition. Um, there are different kind of symptoms that when you meet a certain number of them, they come together and you can say, okay, well, you're diagnosed with PTSD. Um, there's a whole nother conversation that, that I want to just touch on that we don't have to have, but um, there's an important question of like, what is the outcome of trauma aside from PTSD? Because in the DSM, the only, the diagnostic manual for psychiatry and psychology, the only disorder that really acknowledges trauma is PTSD. But trauma leads to so many different kinds of symptoms that aren't PTSD. And there's this open question, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the open question is, well, could MDMA-assisted psychotherapy also be helpful for different kinds of disorders and symptoms that are related to trauma but aren't necessarily PTSD? So, to MDMA. What is MDMA? <laughs> so MDMA, if my memory is correct, I think it was 1912 was when it was first uh, discovered or synthesized by Merck. And they were, uh, I believe, looking for a blood clotting agent i think i don't remember what they were looking for I, it was but simply that this was an intermediate um component in the reaction working towards another drug it wasn't something of interest uh -huh. it was just a uh, i guess almost a waste product along uh -huh. the way uh-huh so in e in either case one misconception to clear up is that a lot of people thought that it was they're looking for an appetite suppressant because mdma is a stimulant um as I heard Shulgin always like to say that you can't take the A out of MDMA, <laughs> which is the amphetamine part, um, which explains its stimulant-like properties. But anyway, in 1912, this was first synthesized, and it really wasn't used and studied in humans at all until I think like the 1970s, maybe late 70s, when um, it was first ingested by a, a human. And then it was really Sasha Shulgin who then, not soon after, began to resynthesized it and then gave MDMA um, and helped it spread through really the mental health community at a time where the drug wasn't yet illegal. It wasn't scheduled yet. And so I don't, it's an interesting question if that's the gray area of the law or not, because it's not really recognized by the law. Um, I always love the story of uh, somebody told me once that MDMA was first called like Adam or empathy and it didn't sell very well. This is how the story goes. And so they rebranded it as ecstasy. And, so, and suddenly as, when dealers began to sell ecstasy, people were, they wanted ecstasy. <laughs> maybe not so much empathy, um, but maybe empathy is a better 
um, maybe a more accurate uh, description or, or uh, of um, of, M- of MDMA. So as it as it uh, kind of went through the club scene, I believe like te- Houston was a big yeah Texas was Texas. the heart of it. Lorenzo of the Psychedelic Salon talks about it a lot. Uh-huh. Yes, yeah, and so um, that then the law the became interested in this new drug and why people were using it. And um, I believe it was 1985 that it was scheduled um, as a Schedule One drug, which means that it has no, uh, has a high risk of abuse and no medical value. The community of mental health professionals and others who saw the, the potential for MDMA to assist therapy particularly for couples counseling and trauma when it was not scheduled yet, they, they advocated for it remaining unscheduled or at least a, a lower, uh, um, a less strict kind of scheduling. And unfortunately, it was still scheduled as the most controlled and that really left MDMA as a, a, a prohibited drug. I mean, the research that was happening with MDMA from the mid eighties into the nineties was purely looking at the dangers of the drug. And so there's a ton of research on the potential dangers of MDMA, but nobody was examining the clinical utility of it or potential. And it wasn't until the, the mid two thousands. Uh, well, I should say that maps, it's very important to talk about maps, the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies, which is the nonprofit organization that, uh, is the sponsor of the research that I do. And really, uh, Rick Doblin, who heads MAPS and the entire MAPS staff and team uh, have since, with Rick starting in 1985 till today, and con- are continuing to fund research for MDMA as a clinical, uh, as a medicine, really, as a potential medicine. And so it's that kind of dedication those decades of dedication that brought us here today where we are about to begin a phase three trial, which is means that um, it's the last phase of research that needs to be done in order to evaluate whether the treatment works and whether uh, it could be one day prescribed as a, uh, as a medicine, which has in significant potential implications for its scheduling because if that were to happen, kind of by definition, you would have to reschedule it from one to something that's less strict. Yeah, it sounds like it was such an exciting time. If anyone out there is interested in the therapy side, there's one book that I always thought was amazing called The Secret Chief. And it's um, an interview actually with Leo Zeff, who was a friend of Dr. Shulgin. And he saw, he actually, he was doing LSD therapy, taught so many people how to do it. And then LSD became illegal. Um, and he tried MDMA and he came out of retirement to go and start treating, uh, teaching other practitioners how to use um, this molecule they called Atom. And he helped turn on a lot of people who kept doing it in the underground, but unfortunately got blocked. And it, thanks to Rick and MAPS, all of a sudden now we can start looking at this and finding some really significant potential for treating veterans and, and victims of abuse. And so I guess a question for you is, what did these sessions look like when you are working with somebody using MDMA and what are, and their fears around this you know, thing that's known as a club drug to, that puts holes in your brain? I have not 
actually done MDMA therapy as a therapist yet. So I've been trained. I've part of the work that I did as a graduate student was to study video recorded sessions of the therapy. So I've seen quite a lot of that. Um, gone through quite a bit of training. So from like a, a very structural perspective, um, in terms of research, we are looking at a participant, a potential participant. They're screened. We're looking for certain kind of um, inclusion and exclusion criteria. And what exclusion criteria is important? What stuff are you watching for the most in terms of safety? Well, so what I can mention is that in terms of fa- safety, certainly people with a currently with a bipolar disorder uh, or um, a psychotic spectrum disorder uh, or even close relationship family member that has a psychotic um, disorder. Those are kind of important markers for us to look at. Um, There are other exclusionary criteria that I won't go into because um, we don't want people to uh, know too much in terms of, um, because this, this treatment is in so much demand that people are willing to, I think, bend the truth in order to get the treatment. And I do think that there are people who would be excluded from our study. Again, this is me. I mean, this is a very, this is really qualify what I'm saying here because I see myself as a scientist and I really take the perspective that if the data is not there, we shouldn't make any strong claims. But what I'm saying here is that I, I do believe that there are people who are, will be excluded from this research who could potentially still benefit from the therapy. We have to understand that more fully. But in the way research works, you are trying to isolate certain variables, and that's why there's rather strict inclusion and exclusion criteria. Um, so, so that's the first process. And then if a person is, passes this pretty rigorous screening they then go into, uh, they'll have three preparation sessions, which consists of what we call the building of a therapeutic alliance, which is simply meaning trust in a relationship between uh, the therapists and uh, the participant. And there are two therapists, male and female, always present throughout the whole treatment. After the three prep sessions, there is the first uh, dosing session or experimental session, test session. There's different words we use for it, but um, that's when the participant will get either MDMA or a placebo. And then after that, there are three integration sessions. Just to return to the the actual dosing session, the participant, that takes six to eight hours. So the the prep sessions are 90 minutes. You could imagine them as if they were like 90 minute therapy sessions. But, um, the, uh, the dosing sessions last anywhere between six to eight hours. And the participant will be either lying down and what we call kind of going inward, blindfolds with music without any kind of vocals in English to not uh, prime the person or bring the person into some sort of intellectual space too much. And um, they, they are either inward or they're engaging socially with the two therapists, socially meaning having a conversation about whatever comes up. And it's a very non-directive kind of treatment. So uh, a person is in a very open state when they're under the influence of MDMA. And it, as a therapist, it has much more to do with not doing than with doing. It's much more about being very careful about when you are active 
and not being overly active in terms of trying to get the participant to think a certain way or to do a certain thing. Uh, it's really more driven by the participant. And um, so that's kind of that in a nutshell. Um, and then there are these integration sessions. So there are these three 90-minute sessions that take place. One is immediately the morning after the dosing session. So the participant stays at the therapy site overnight. And then all these sessions, other than that, the sessions are pretty much one week apart. So if you had you know, three weeks of this one 90-minute prep session, and then you get the dose, and then you have three integration sessions. So everything's roughly spread out by a week. And uh, that repeats Actually, so, so there are then, after the three integration sessions, there's a dose session, three more integration sessions, another dosing session, and then three more integration sessions. So at the end of the day, it's something like 15-ish, uh, do my math, 15-ish 90-minute uh, therapy sessions with these three six to eight-hour dosing sessions. That's kind of the model right now. Yeah. That's a very labor-intensive model. It, it might, it's one of the problems with how this might roll out is how we're going to have enough people and, and resources to do that, especially if, I mean, just taking care of the veterans who should be getting this treatment would be a huge investment. Well, yeah. Um, so this treatment unto itself is not like anything else that's out there except for maybe a psilocybin treatment or psilocybin-assisted therapy or Maybe maybe there's some comparisons to like EMDR in some ways, but that's a separate thing. Um, so the thing that the thing about that is um, one, it's a combination of a pharmaceutical and a or a drug and therapy. And for example, the FDA does not govern or study observe psychotherapy. They don't. <laughs> but they do they do look at right med, uh, potential medicines or uh um you know other kinds of products like that or or devices even right uh, medical devices so that's a weird that just that alone is a weird fit right so you're you're sort of submitting that you, the FDA is looking over our protocol for the study and there's all this stuff that they don't really care about so much um now the another way that this is sort of a a new thing is in what you had just mentioned, which is that um, it's a lot of therapy kind of front loaded in a way. So it's, it's resource intensive, time intensive. But if you think about the number of people who've been in PTSD treatment for many, many, many years, who've definitely been through many more hours of treatment than what we're doing. Um, and it seems like from the data that we've collected so far, that when people have their symptoms reduced for some people, they don't even meet criteria for PTSD anymore. Uh, that is how, in some participants, the effect is effect the effect is strong, um, and then that that seems to last in the studies that have been conducted. Um, the follow ups are actually pretty lengthy, and it seems like people maintain their benefits for a longer period of time. So, there there's expense associated with that up upfront resources, and there's a big conversation around insurance coverage and how can we, it's one thing to find a treatment that works. And then there's another whole part of it. Like, how do you, um, how do you make that treatment available? It's another huge problem. I mean, this is yeah, the amount of effort that has gone into making, making this happen is incredible. That's a piece of it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and especially the model of how it's getting done. You, know, you normally pharmaceuticals get approved by you know a billion dollar or so process, and there hasn't been many nonprofits like Maps pushing through a, a drug that's going to get approved. I think the Plan B birth control was the first nonprofit drug pushed through, but mm -hmm. uh, now Maps is trying to do that same thing with. You know this old reviled drug. It's it's yeah. kind of an amazing process. I always give my ha hats off to Rick Dobler yeah. for charging ahead yeah. under the heart of Reagan's presidency. Yeah. He said, "Let's start an MDMA yeah. treatment." Yeah. But the the political smarts of it was so good. I mean, focusing on veterans. It's you know it's a group that everybody cares about. Yeah. But if I remember correctly, the first studies were on victims of sexual abuse mm -hmm. because uh, it was a population that had demonstrate treatment resistance. So they'd mm. been many right. years, they right. tried everything else under the sun, and That's then this right. showed rather remarkable results. Yeah. So treatment resistance was defined, I believe, as at least one, I can't remember the exact numbers, it was definitely at least one psychotherapy and one pharmaceutical intervention that didn't work. It may have been two psychotherapies and one, I'm not sure, but it was definitely at least, you know, having tried two different kinds of treatments and not responding. So these were uh, participants, these were people who had chronic long-term PTSD and did not respond to other treatments. And um, now that's not the case. You don't have to have a, um, a you don't have to be a non-responder to previous treatment to be eligible for uh, this, the research now. And so can you tell me about the program that enabled you to have your session yesterday? Sure. Yeah. So MAPS was able to get a study approved that is known as MT1, um, which it's funny. I can't, I can't uh, say MT1 anymore without one of the therapists that is on my team in New York uh, likes to say MT1, <laughs> uh, which you know I, I think of like Buddhism of like of emptiness as being a good thing, right? And and have, so so I he always likes to say that and uh, I can't now get that out of my mind um so it's it's m the letter t letter 1 and um here the participants are therapists and the therapists that are in who are going to be conducting the phase 3 research and the idea behind it in part at least is to have each therapist have their own experience with the MDMA and speaking from my own experience with it, what I found helpful about it was not just having my own experience with it and being know knowing what that state is like, but also to observe how the two therapists were responding to me or how they were engaged with me in a particular way that really ingrained the training that I received previously. Because when you get the training, it's... It's easy to MDMA. The way that MDMA therapy is designed—that's also a long conversation—but it's sort of a mix of a lot of different ways of working. And therapists are actually invited to bring their own modality a little bit into the mix. Um, but there is a particular aspect of this non-directive way of working because you're people are somewhat suggestible in the state, and that's a that's a strong way of putting it. You know, I don't think you could get a person to just obey your commands, but there's a way where a person is so open that um, what is said is actually really kind of affects you. You kind of 
you can you experience what is being said on a, like a, an emotional level has like a more greater emotional re- uh, resonance. And so, uh, for me to be able to observe how the, my two therapists who've had more experience doing this MDMA therapy to hear and see how they responded to me, uh, was a real a teaching moment. Uh, it was very powerful. And I think I'm, I now carry that with me in a different way. Mm-hmm. That would be a wonderful way to learn. It, it, se- it does sound very important. So often doctors haven't tried the drugs that they're giving to patients because they shouldn't or they, they wouldn't. Um, but here it just makes so much sense. Yeah, it's, there's, you know, I, I'm, somebody recently asked me just flat out, like, how important do you think it is that a therapist have their own ex- experiences with MDMA or, or psilocybin um, before they do they provide the treatment themselves and my response i think you know anything that i say can i can rethink and reconsider it at a later time but i i still i think i i think that i'm a little bit more open-minded about that than maybe more other people in the psychedelic community i think there's a real my impression is that there's a real strong conviction amongst people who are sort of following the psychedelic research and psychedelic treatment that a therapist has to have their own experience. And I would scale that back to maybe like, I feel that way, maybe seven, like a seven out of 10, you know, because there are people who are just very, they're therapists who are just excellent therapists and get that idea of non-directive treatment and can, I think would, would be able to do the treatment well um, without having their own experience. But I have to say that it certainly is helpful um, and we should maybe even acknowledge some history because um, when I was an undergraduate, I did some research with uh, speaking to mental health professionals in the former Czechoslovakia um, when LSD was legal. And uh, it was interesting there because in that, it was, that was communism. So the social context in which LSD and psychedelic therapy happened was different than in the United States where there was also like a parallel um, cultural movement, social cultural movement. Um, and what I did in my re- research was to ask these mental health professionals how important they thought it was that mental health providers had their own experience with the drug before they administered it. And there it was a, so almost like unanimous agreement that like they should. Um, so that was one of the strongest outcomes of, of our study that we did actually. Um, you know, it was like we, we, we interviewed and also did surveys with about 20 people. So it's not like a huge sample size, but when you think about the number of people that were <laughs> doing that work at that time, it's, it's not that many. Um, so, um, yeah, so there, there was a, there's a historical context to this stuff. The MT one is really, uh, a reemergence of something that was actually considered to be ma- mandatory, maybe even like uh, it would be unethical to, induce a state in somebody else without really knowing it yourself. Again, I, I don't think that that's entirely true, but I think there's some some truth in it. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, there are just some therapists who are wonderful. You know, they're going to they they already live in a in an empathetic psychedelic state anyway. Yeah, you um, know, uh, Jag Davies likes to say that like there's a Mithoffer effect. So Michael and Annie Mithoffer were the the therapists who were sort of leading the MDMA research, the first therapists. And um 
he's like, they're such lovely people. Like, it's like, I don't know, I don't know if it's the MDMA or if it's just them. <laughs> what was it like for you yesterday after you've watched hundreds of hours of other people's MDMA videos and know so much from the underground and the above ground? Um, what was it like for you? One thing that stood out to me the most is, and this is an important part of the, the what you could call healing or therapeutic aspect of MDMA is what um, we refer to as the inner healing intelligence, um, which I've, I've now like fully embraced that term. <laughs> I feel like I hadn't always, I was just like, Jesus, that's so much, so hippie. But um, I mean, it's ac it's an accurate description of what it is. Uh, another way of thinking about it that maybe is less laden is just intuition. And it's incredible. It's incredible that we, we actually know there's a part of us that knows what is what what is best for us or what we in a way need to hear but it's coming from our that comes from within so maybe to explain a little bit better after when a person is under the influence of the MDMA it seems like i don't know how to quite describe it it's like your con conscience, that kind of voice inside you or that, that dialogue that you have with yourself, which is often for most people really critical. <laughs> um, it kind of somehow changes and you begin to have, you could maybe call them insights, but it's not just logical. It has a, this incredible emotional res like resonance or weight to it where you're starting to hear yourself feel yourself sort of t saying things or hearing things. It's not like voices in your head, though. It, it's just like this sort of knowledge that you're getting from yourself that is what you need to hear to get better. <laughs> to, to sort of, whether that, you know, to be, whatever that may mean for each person. And so I've like, for years, sort of knew about this uh, and read about this and was taught this. But it's not until... And this is what happened to me in my experience yesterday, where it went from that intellectual, like, yes, inner healing intelligence to like experiencing this intuition, this internal intuition. And I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's that thing, right? <laughs> that That's what it's about. Um, and I really do think that that is what I do think that this is a strong part of what is therapeutic about the and that's why the non-directive piece is so important, that it's not coming from the therapists necessarily. It may be kind of helping you get there in some ways, but it's, it's about one's own internal intelligence that is coming out that is sort of showing you things. And it's absolutely remarkable. I mean, it's remarkable that we don't really have contact with that on a daily basis. And maybe we do and we just sort of ignore it or block it or can't hear it or whatever. Um, but it's there. And it's probably there all the, all the time, but somehow this, uh, the, the, this drug allows that to kind of shine through. That's great. Now, how much time did you spend uh, with the eye shades on and the music versus out loud talking? And how different did that feel? Well, <clears throat> I'll, I'll preface this by talking about what I have studied in the videos, which is I've seen in, I've seen people talk to the therapist the entire time. Can't like, take the A out of M yeah, right, MDMA. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many feelings. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but this is, you know, people who've, who've observed um, 
people you know use recreationally or use other stimulants like talk a lot or can talk a lot um but i've also seen videos where the participants were <laughs> they just went inside the whole time and um I know that I actually, I can, not that it really matters, but I can demonstrate this quantitatively because what we were doing was transcribing these videos and, uh, like I was looking at word count and things like that. So like, you know, some, some, I can't remember what the top one was something like 30,000 words or something like that. And then the, then it was like the, the bottom was something like maybe 200 words over the course of eight hours or three. And all it consisted of was Michael Midhoffer going up to the participant and saying like, is everything okay? And they're like, yeah, everything is great. And that was it. That was basically the the, ex- the exchange that occurred over this, you know, the checking in, doing the blood, like heart rate um, monitoring and that kind of stuff. But the, the and the thing is that there was no. I mean, it's hard to conclude just from those two videos because there's a lot of other stuff going on. But th- there wasn't a difference in their outcome. Now there may be other factors that may explain that. But in terms of my own experience, I did a little bit of both. I think I was probably more it's hard you know time begins to change your perception of time is altered a little bit but my sense from the therapist who spoke to me i think i was more engaged socially than i was going in but the thing is you know sometimes this is part of the the therapy training there are times where the therapist may suggest for the participant in this case me to like to go inside to examine a particular feeling or thought or kind of sticking point to kind of see if going in will help with that. And there were maybe two occasions where I kind of put my blindfolds on, put the headphones on, and it was maybe like two minutes. It's like, yep, all right. Like, <laughs> like you know, it came so quickly. <laughs> um, not always, not always. But, um, you know, I like to, c- to consider myself to be kind of in tune with that inner voice um not always obviously but like i feel like close to it and it's something that i um i connect with you've been lecturing about this kind of uh work for a long time and out in the circuit talking a lot to people um and so you know a lot of the issues underlying the um the good sides of this the controversies and things like that if you had your own podcast what would the topics be that you would want to focus on that might be more controversial that you think need aired in the community. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, I should. I'm going to do another preface, which is we we, I, we didn't even have much of a chance to talk about everything that I do, and that's sort of that's just kind of important to to kind of contextualize all of this. So, one, um, I'm a co-PI principal investigator, which means that for the site in New York. Uh, what we call the private practice site, because there's also a New York University site. So for the private practice site that is doing MDMA for PTSD, I'm kind of like the co-leader of that site with, along with Casey Paleos, who is an MD. I'm a, a PhD clinical psychologist. Uh, Casey uh, is leading that with me. And uh, so that's one of my roles in life right now. <laughs> the other one is that I'm a NIH-funded NIH uh, postdoctoral fellow at uh, NYU, which is confusing because I'm not doing MDMA work necessarily at NYU. I'm not part of that team, uh, although I'm very fond of them. Um, but I have a postdoc position uh, at the university. And then the other thing that I do, which is related to your question, is that I'm the director of a program called the Psychedelic Education and Continuing Care Program, which is a uh, private practice that focuses on not providing 
not providing psychedelics or MDMA to do therapy, but basically everything else around it. So that can include people who have never done a psychedelic, who are interested in their potential risk. What, what are the risks that are associated with engaging in psychedelic use? To people who are psychonauts, who it could be something as simple as like not really got getting where they want to in life. Um, despite their psychedelic experiences, like needing what we call maybe integration. And um, to people who have other kinds of struggles in their life, other kinds of symptom pathology, to put it clinically, who are trying to engage in psychedelic use to help themselves, but aren't, again, quite getting to where they want to be. And so as the director of this program, I've been able to it's been very rich for me and probably the greatest learning experience I've had so far in terms of a more broader view of what's going on in the psychedelic world. Um, and I'm not going to talk about cases necessarily because I don't want to, I don't have permission from my patients to speak about the particulars, but it really ranges. And the thing that I like to say, because I think it's really true that in terms of the integration work I've done, it's quite rare will somebody when somebody comes I think what people think about integration, they think that they have this sort of incredible experience that they can't quite digest and they need help making meaning out of that experience. And what I found to be more common are people struggling in the day to day with very mundane life kind of struggles and not quite getting to where they want to be uh, and kind of focus on What's the relationship to psychedelics? What's the relationship to other things going in, the, in their life? Are psychedelics helpful? Because sometimes they're not. Uh, and kind of supporting a person through that process. Now, in terms of this podcast, so I've had this idea, and I don't know if I'm ever going to do it, but I would really love to have conversations with people more publicly about the things in the psychedelic community that the psychedelic community, meaning people who are fans of this research, who've everybody from the researchers to the, I call them fans. It's maybe derogatory, but people who like really appreciate what we're fellow doing. Fellow travelers. Fellow travelers. Yeah. That's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the, the things that they don't want to talk about or things that maybe they're afraid to talk about. And I have to give credit where credit's due because this, um, this inspiration came from James Kent who, um, has this podcast called dose nation where he's kind of concluding it, but, he's kind of airing all of the things that he's kept to himself across his de decades of interacting with the psychedelic community. Uh, and I think we need to have more conversations around these topics. And one of them, if I may, is um, something that a few people have touched on, but hasn't really been catalyzed uh, or formalized yet, which is the potential for psychedelics to be traumatic um dare dare i say and please don't hold my word to this maybe a kind of of a psychedelic induced ptsd and now why do i think that people don't want to have this conversation well because there's so much well there now there's a psychedelic renaissance where the media and the public is willing to engage in this kind of idea that maybe MDMA and psychedelics could potentially be helpful. But that wasn't the case 
what, like six years ago, seven years ago, this is relatively new. And so I think there's a lot of fear around having a conversation about the potential harmful effects of psychedelics um, when used in not ideal or, or in, in when the conditions aren't right. Um, and the reason why I'm saying this and phrasing it in this way is because I think there is a difference between, I think most mental health professionals would think of a, of a, when they hear about these cases, they would think of a psychotic disorder, like a substance-induced psychosis or a, um, you know, acute psychotic disorder or maybe like a catalyst for schizophrenia. And that's not to say that that doesn't exist. I think that that potential is there too. Um, seen that with in, in patient units with cannabis, you know, but there's this question of pre-existing pre predisposition to that. But I think the, the psychedelic PTSD is, is different because it, it looks different. Um, it's very somatic. Um, people, I've been hearing from more, more women, and that I have a small sample here, so I'm not making any kind of gender-based um, uh, conclusions or sex-based conclusions. Um, but they, uh, you know, for some, they may uh, not have their period anymore. There's like hair loss. There's certain kind of somatic symptoms. And then coming with that is sort of the intrusive symptoms that you, you are, are a part of PTSD, which is, um, but they're psychedelic, you know? So whereas that veteran would return back to Vietnam, they're exposed to a stimulus that brings them back to that place. But for them, that's, that can be concrete, right? It can be the jungle or it can be, it can be so many things depending on what kind of trauma it is. But the thing that I've noted in terms of people having um, a hard, this kind of psychedelic PTSD is that often it's in response to uh, that kind of, I don't know if I could call it ego death or that kind of like intense fear response where the person under the psychedelic really believes that they're going to die, right? Which is one of the kind of criteria connected to PTSD. They come out of it they're not psychotic. It's not like that they've have a, had a break with reality in some way, not necessarily delusional, but um, say, particularly when they're about to fall asleep or they, their kind of mind is maybe a little bit more at ease. These sort of intrusive kind of psychedelic things come to like maybe, maybe patterns or just sort of different um, reminders of that state, that state of being in like, and I really am fond of this word, existential terror. You know, I think that that really captures that state of being an existential terror. And um, I don't know, I, I hope that integration, the work that I do would be helpful for that. And I haven't been able to work with those cases yet. Um, and I myself am still learning about how to approach that kind of um, picture you could say symptom picture because you know some level of of ptsd treatment has to include exposure i well there's actually evidence against that but <laughs> a lot of treatments use exposure as somewhere in there even the mdma therapy for ptsd there's some aspect of imaginary exposure where the person when they're going inward they may be they often almost always when they have PTSD, recollect the trauma in some way and re-relate to it in a new way. But how the heck do you do that with a psychedelic experience? 
It's not like I can, you know, show you a photo of the the Vietnam jungle or like have you write a. I guess maybe they could write a script about their experience, and but that's it's that's very invasive. So there's this real conundrum around like because people talk about how psychedelic experiences themselves are difficult to express in words. So then how then do you kind of work with that? Um, and I've re been receiving some guidance from one of my mentors, Andrew Tatarski, who um, runs the Center for Optimal Living where the psychedelic program is, is housed. And so he's been helping me with, with, with uh, me with that a little bit, but it's a challenge and it's something that we just don't talk about. Yeah, that would be the idea of psychedelic trauma. It would you can just see out on the festival circuit how much that would be a verboten idea that they could do that kind of damage. But the funny part is when I'm out there you know, do, asking about people's stories, it seems like everybody knows a bad weed story and a bad psychedelic story where you have someone who is really harmed by these things, maybe for a couple of weeks or a couple of months and maybe forever, and it doesn't get credence. It, get, it gets treated as prohibitionistic propaganda when – this is a story of a peer. This is a story of someone who's into these drugs. They're not. They're not sharing this to put them down. Because the psychedelic field is kind of neglected generally, we don't have the numbers. Like it would be great if, like, we could say on an um, um, epidemiological level, like, okay, these are the number. We do know how many people use psychedelics roughly, right? But we don't know how many people have had this kind of experience. I would still venture to say that is rare. Uh, it's a complete guess, but you know, I'm in a position where. I'm directing this program where people are coming. Com I'm, I'm a, it's, a, it's a selection bias. Like they're coming to me because they need help. So I'm hearing these stories. Um, so I don't want to. I don't want to overemphasize the danger, right? I mean, there's there's risk, but it, it's who knows what the percentage is. The other thing that I've noticed, again, totally anecdotal, is that this has been. It's hard to make this claim, but it seems like ayahuasca and LSD seem to, this seems to happen. Those are the cases that I've heard of. I haven't heard, and I think it would, I would venture to say that it, again, totally anecdotal, that MDMA, due to the way that MDMA works, would less likely l lead to this kind of experience. Although, you know, it, it could, maybe. But I think it's much less likely. You know, now, now my fear, right, is that like, <laughs> I've said this now and there's going to be some journalist out there who's going to say, you know, who's going to turn the tide of, and this is maybe my paranoia, but they're going to say like headline, like, you know, ayahuasca and LSD cause, you know, psychedelic PTSD, which is not the, you know, that's not the take home that I'm trying to deliver here. It's more that um, we need to look at all sides of this, but the media and sensationalism particularly today is so intense. Anything for the clicks, right? Um, so that, that scares me. Yeah, and it's a very reasonable fear, but I think I think this is definitely the right option. I mean, we can't can't let ourselves be guided by lousy journalism when these negative experiences uh, that last forever do happen. It do, it does seem to be pretty damn rare for the amount of psychedelics and, right. and the amount of bad actors who are giving ayahuasca to yeah. people all over the place, and still the ayahuasca goes okay right. or is transformative. Right. right, that speaks that speaks about something. That's yeah, something. Yeah, but uh, you know the the amount of fallout you see from the '60s and from the '80s, uh, you know LSD is is harder to abuse. Uh, in some in in one in a lot of ways because it but mdma is much easier to be doing for a couple of months straight every night and yeah it's a pretty not it's a pretty safe non-toxic drug as far as things go but um you know you can't 
you see what happens if you take a thing like that 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 plays havoc with your hair your serotonin system and all these systems brain can't take that yeah i mean to speak to the mdma i had it's i this is it seems very rare to me but i do actually know of two cases and the other thing we should mention about this this is probably less case less likely for ayahuasca but when people are using mdma recreationally there's also usually alcohol on board and other substances and um, of the cases that i know that i'm thinking about where there was sort of a negative response to the mdma there probably in one case definitely and in the other more like most likely that there was other you know uh, mind-altering substances that were involved along with it but they both kind of involved um an intense sort of social anxious response, like, which is curious because to me, I think of MDMA as something that could potentially even be helpful for social anxiety. Um, but in this case, for these two individuals, um, they became very acutely aware of their surroundings and began to have thoughts that the people who are around them are laughing at them or critical of them. And it kind of led to, not forever, but um, a prolonged period of time of kind of increased anxiety. That really rings true to me uh, because my personal experience with MDMA is the first couple of times there was that warm, buttery feeling, but that faded really quickly. And then the only thing left was an amphetamine-type rush, right. and that's just was so unpleasant. Yeah. I have all this energy, and I know I shouldn't be using it because I sound terrible and stupid, and it, it really it led my brain to thinking faster what right. a lousy piece right. of shit I am. Right. Right. Well, that's the, I mean, it's funny because we're coming back to the, you can't get the A out of MDMA. And um, it's an important part of, it also connects to how MDMA psychotherapy or MDMA assisted psychotherapy may be helpful for PTSD. So PTSD used to be classified as an anxiety disorder. I don't think it is anymore. Um, but uh, so you could think of trauma and PTSD as related to anxiety. And we know that generally for people who have anxiety, it's not a good idea to give them an amphetamine because it will generally tends to increase anxiety. The neat thing about MDMA, and I think an important property of MDMA, and this is based off of Matt, Matthew Baggett's research with healthy humans, uh, just great work. I just praise it. I just talk about this wherever I go. But he, I'm going to skip the sort of the, the study design because it's lengthy. But essentially, what he found was that people report uh, increased feelings of authenticity. Um, what were the other sort of positive ones? Um, I'm not recollecting now, but the important take-home message from that study was that people don't experience a decrease in their anxiety. In fact, when people get MDMA, they experience an increase in their anxiety, right? Which is counterintuitive because people think, and there is some evidence to suggest that MDMA dampens the fear response in the amygdala, which maybe it does, but it keeps the anxiety intact, it seems. And that is really important in therapy because why some people argue that it's hard to do therapy with individuals who are on benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepines are anti-anxiolytics, anti-anxiety. And what, that, what they do very effectively is they can block that anxiety signal. But if we're thinking about exposure or if we're just thinking about in being touch with that kind of signal that's inside of you to be able to work with it, you kind of need to access that anxiety to be able to work with it. And so I think it's actually important that MDMA may even contribute to an increase in anxiety. I, yeah, and I think it was Leo Zeff who said uh, benzos are putting the feelings underneath uh, 
the rug, and MDMA is taking the rug out back and beating the hell out of it. <laughs> that was a nice way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the last question I'd, I'd like to ask is if we manage to wrangle – a big research fund for you so you could buy a nice property upstate, maybe in Valhalla or something, and have your own center. What would it look like? What, would the, what are the pieces of that that would be the most important to you for the kind of work you want to do? There's one one thing that comes to mind is just the setting, right? I mean, that's so important. And we, I mentioned that in my experience in the MT1 study yesterday that um, that the therapist's uh, and I think it was mostly Marcella who uh, did the interior decorating. Nothing super fancy, but it, like I felt like I, I said that was, uh, while I was under the influence of the MDMA that I felt like I was floating in a cloud. And just that, I think having a, uh, an environment that is cl- it's classic set and setting, but the setting, that's so important. Um, so it would be something that would be spacious with light and maybe near nature. I don't think that's absolutely essential, but could be important. Um, and then in terms of the work, well, I have some hypotheses that I'd keep, rather keep to myself. <laughs> uh, and they're not my own. There are other researchers who I work with who are interested in testing them. And I think they're really big ideas that have real, real potential to... Um, to show evidence, further evidence for how MDMA therapy works. It's a big question that I'm interested in. It's like, what is it doing? Um, but one thing that I would be willing to share is um, I would really be really interested in, in how MDMA or what if MDMA could help people with social anxiety. Um, I think we'd have to be careful about how we go about doing that. But um, I think social anxiety is partly connected to the fear of others, fear of saying the wrong thing or not um, sort of losing contact with other people socially, be seen as um, somebody who's rejected. There's different way, flavors of social anxiety. But to me, it just seems like such an obvious potential um, treatment because MDMA is a stimulant, <laughs> so people are engaged. Um, and then it comes about, come, I think it would become about, what's the word? Not externalizing, but um, kind of broadening that experience that the participant would have with their therapist in terms of being socially connected and experiencing that as safe, and then helping broaden that out to the community outside. And this is like a totally radical idea, and I don't, again, just an idea, but maybe there will be some day in the future where somebody could uh, be engaged in this therapeutic process, and part of their exposure or the, the therapy would be to have the person under the influence of MDMA engage with, um, they couldn't be complete strangers, I don't think that would be good, but some, maybe you would have some sort of confederates or somebody, <laughs> like they would, they would be able to kind of go and, and engage um, and practice and see and experience the safety of connecting to others. 
Maybe that wouldn't even be necessary, but you know, it's a potential. Yeah, but no, this is we're beautiful. talking about. I wouldn't propose this any time in the next decade. <laughs> <laughs> but it's beautiful. Take it out of the take it out of the just one on one therapy and into something even more practical that relates to real life. Yeah, because I think that's what a person really. I, mean, I think you can still do that in, internally and do it in the, the, the psycho, context of the psychotherapy. Um, but there is something about experiencing it um, in the real in the real world. Well, Ingmar, thank you so much. I really hope that you get your giant, beautiful center upstate <laughs> or wherever it is that you want it and get to keep working on these, on these problems. Thank you so much for your work and thanks for coming on the show. Yes, thank you so much for having me, Lex. I really appreciate it. 